0: hey everyone it's desmond a quick note about this week's show during our discussion of type specs chris and i mentioned that you're not able to describe the type of a key when typing your maps we say that you're only allowed to describe the type of values and that's not right you can absolutely specify the type of each key and the type of its value what we meant to say was that there are some restrictions about using literals to describe the key name so sorry about that I wrote a blog post going over some of the ins and outs of type specing maps and what's allowed and what's not. So check that out if you have a chance. We'll post a link in the show notes. So apologies again. And thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Elixir Talk, the podcast where we discuss your questions about Elixir application design and the state of the ecosystem. I'm your host, Desmond Bowie, and I'm joined by my other host, Chris Bell. Hey, Desmond. Hello, Chris. How's things going? Um, You know, you ask me this every week, and um, I never have a good answer, and it's one of those, like, someone asks you how it's going, and then a bunch of things flood your mind at once, but you can't pick any one thing out of the mix. So good.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was a good TLDR.
0: (laughs) Yeah, sort of standard answer that people give. Yeah. Although, I'm one of those people that, um, when I ask people how it's going, I I want them to tell me. I don't want them to be like, oh, it's good. How are you? Because then you may as well not have said anything.
1: Yeah, I kind of just do it just to, you know, just warm things up. But uh, Mm -hmm. I... I didn't really expect you to go into this much detail about <laughs> what how you're doing, but you know we're here now and that's the show. So
0: well, and that's just it. Is then when you do like give people an honest answer, they think you're an asshole because like they don't want to hear about it. They're just trying to be polite. They don't care. Yeah, about now what you, you just do.
1: burden me with all your problems. Man. I know, jeez.
0: <laughs> but the helpful thing is then you know who your friends are and who your friends are
1: not. There you go, and we all learned something today. Yeah, even before we got to talking about Elixir. <laughs> it's, it's an amazing thing. Yeah, well, um, one of the things
0: that I wanted to talk about today is uh, type specs in Elixir. Okay. Um, I, don't, I don't know how many people use type specs. I mean, I've seen people use them in, in library code, um, but I, I'm not sure how many people use them in
1: application code. Do you want to give uh, our listeners a little overview of type specs, just in case they're not familiar?
0: Sure. So as you might know, Elixir um, has types, but it's not a strongly typed language. Um, it's dynamic language. You can pass uh, whatever you want to functions and it won't care. I mean, it'll blow up at runtime if you haven't specified um, a kind of a matcher or anything on the function. So what type specs let you do is annotate each function with um, what types it takes and what types it returns. And um, it lets you define your own custom types uh, or use the built-in types. So, and then you can use that in uh, the documentation that gets built. Uh, the hex docs make extensive use of this sort of thing. The standard library is pretty good about um, having type specs in their docs. And uh, the Dialyzer tool will help you catch errors if it notices that you're calling a function with an array when it should be a map. So um, it's only as good as you let it be. Um, And it puts a lot of the onus on the developer to um, do things well. And I think people don't use them that much because, one, frankly, it kind of clutters up your code base. Um, particularly if you have docs strings ahead of each function, things can get kind of uh, noisy. And also, I think if you're writing tests, then you might wonder, well, why do I need, why do I need a type spec? So I'll kick it off with you, Chris. Do you use type specs a lot in your code?
1: Yeah, I actually just wanted to to dig into what you were saying there. Why do you think it clutters up your code base? That's a weird statement. Okay, so. I'm picturing a file in my, in my
0: brain vision, where I have a couple of functions, and maybe I have a, a three or four line function, and on top of that is a three line doc string, and then below that is a one line spec. So now I have f- an equal number of lines of not code about the code. And so if I'm trying to scan through my file and see, well, what's the functionality here? I have to mentally block out a lot of things that um, don't don't serve an operational purpose in the program. I mean, obviously a doc string and a type spec serve a purpose, but it's not like, it's not operational.
1: As a human, I appreciate docs so that I can more clearly understand the code that's beneath those docs. That's my perspective on it, but. I totally understand where, why you might not enjoy it as well. Um, I do think that, the I, I see where you're coming from. I see the idea that like, you're, you're not writing code by having those docs there, but mm-hmm. I would also say that they have inherent value in the code base in the same way that, from my perspective, um, a type spec also has that. So for me, being able to just see at a glance what that function takes in and then gives out is so powerful. Um, And I think it really helps kind of clear up this idea of like, what does this function do? Especially when you're scanning through, right? Like I've been like dumped into things and I'm like, or come back to something months later and been like, "Uh, what does that do? Uh, What does it take? You know, Mm -hmm. and like something, you know, one of the arguments is slightly ambiguous and maybe it doesn't have a pattern match on a struct at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So you're kind of like left wondering, what does that take in? Um, having that type spec really kind of clarifies things for me. So do you use them very much? Yeah, yeah, I mean because Elixir's like because it's a dynamically typed language I think having some kind of like hinting at the types that come into a function is a really important thing Um, I honestly I'm really controversial here, this might be a controversial opinion so warning to everyone but I am of the um, Impress of the impression. No, I'm of the opinion that they should be um, that they should be uh, strictly enforced. So all fun- all public functions should have type specs. That is a strong opinion. It, may- it might be weakly held. Let's let's <laughs> test that belief.
0: Can it be dynamically held?
1: No. Oh, <laughs> it's elixir and jokes. <laughs> um, I. I think that I think that they provide a ton of value back for the, um, the maintainers of their code base. And I think also in terms of your documentation, once you generated it as well, having those type specs is a really good thing because you get an added hint in your documentation about what that function takes in. So do you need type specs if you're already writing tests like robust tests? Uh, now we're back to that. Like, this is, you know what you're doing here? You're surfacing that age old debate about if I have types, do I need tests? Right? Basically, that. Uh, yes. I mean, I think about it. Well, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. If the language was very strongly typed, so an actual strongly typed language, mm-hmm. it. Let's just go to that extreme for one second. Let's say that Elixir had, was a strongly typed language. Tests are still beneficial, right? Because you cannot test all of the permutations uh, just from having uh, types in the language, but they will help you because they will catch com- things at compile time potentially, mm-hmm. or even at runtime if, if it's strongly typed and it does it at runtime as well. It can still be helpful, but it does not negate the need for tests. And now if we switch back all the way down to a dynamically typed language like Elixir, having the type specs helps the, helps you as a programmer, it, but it does not ne- negate the need for tests as well. It means you can probably eliminate a kind of class of tests, like given this thing, um, I don't expect it to do anything or something like that, maybe. Mm-hmm. But then using something uh, like property testing might also be a good way to deal with that as well.
0: So at our situation, um, the client I'm working with, we don't have a lot of tests um, for a couple of reasons, but the f- situation is we don't have a lot of tests. And um, we've been bitten by some issues about, oh, well, we're passing the wrong thing. Uh, we haven't found that out because some code paths haven't been exercised or uh, just bugs are kind of slipping through. So I've been going in and uh, retroactively adding specs to. Give myself something to work with because, frankly, it's uh, easier than writing tests for something, um, and it helps catch basic um, basic mistakes around. Yeah, "Yeah, I gave this thing the wrong thing. It doesn't catch logic
1: errors. Yeah, but that but again, that's like so. uh, That's what the compiler and the computer is really good at, right? Like, given this, I expect this, Mm -hmm. right? Like, and if you can do that using the compiler as a crutch, I think that's really cool. Like, I think it like as a As a developer, it can really increase your productivity there. But I will say the counterpoint here is that, actually, it's not even a counterpoint, it's just what we do. So we add type specs to everything, but then we don't actually use Dialyzer, so (laughs) is there still value in those type specs, one might ask. So how do you Um, know the
0: type specs are correct?
1: well, you kind of don't, but you, you <laughs> hope that once a, the engineer who is en- implementing it is doing it, they have checked it. <laughs> but what this does mean, though, is that later on we can come through and add a dialyzer check or something like that, and then we should get even more value out of it. So Interesting. So, <laughs> so you're, you're going to say I'm doing it wrong. I'm going to say you're doing it wrong because you don't have tests. But that's a different argument, I guess, here.
0: Well, but it's it's strange to me that you've
1: gone to the trouble of adding these type specs, but then you don't use them for anything. We do. We use them for documentation. They, To me, they provide a ton of value back to our engineers just through documentation. But they could be wrong. They could be wrong. That is correct. But... <laughs> But (laughs) Uh, yeah I guess I don't even have a but yes they could be wrong but I mean it's not that much more effort for us now to add Dialyzer and then go back through Um, I guess the reason we haven't done it yet is just generating that PLT file is really kind of a pain in the ass takes a long time yeah it is a pain (laughs) You, say, you seem like a man who has been stung by that in the past just like PTSD of generating this file no I mean I actually the opposite I mean yeah it takes a while but
0: that to me is not that's not a deal breaker now I would like it if it were faster sure um, but saying like oh it takes too long to run I'm not going to run it it's like well the
1: test we can take a long time to run no have you even used Elixir? the tests are really fast bro Sometimes <laughs> do you even sometimes yeah, no, test suites are slow so I mean I would say for you it sounds like you should invest in unit tests given the testing pyramid it sounds like unit tests might be uh, a good move right? Yes, and then a smattering of integration tests
0: yes uh, and to be clear I'm not auguring
1: against tests right but you're saying that you're using type specs to just kind of fill in a couple of cracks. Yeah, at this point, it's like,
0: I will take what I can get. um, And it's easier to write type specs than, um, you know, if you're passing around a hefty data structure that needs a lot of things um, built up and it's not immediately clear from looking at a function um, what later functions down the chain will need out of this, like, kind of massive um, god object that gets passed through. Mm -hmm. Um, Writing tests can be well, you know, if if you haven't kept up on writing your factories and building up the proper um, the proper environment for your tests, like doing that later is is a, a bigger and bigger hurdle. So, but it's easier to say oh, this function takes
1: a map and returns a struct. But to me, it sounds like if you're already running into those issues, like this is the time to invest in doing those tests.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, Okay, I was expecting violent disagreement or something, but you sounded like you just agreed.
0: I mean, look, I'm not going to argue against tests. I'm just <laughs> saying, <laughs> I don't know how many times I have to so- say that, but um, you know, I've found my I find myself in this situation, and um, type specs have been a helpful stopgap. Right, and I do think that you have a good point that they are like extremely useful documentation, um, and I've gone so far as to wonder. Should you have,
1: like, type spec-driven development? Ooh. Actually, you know what? I sometimes dub out function heads like that, and I write the spec first. So I guess I kind of practice some of that sometimes, but I wouldn't say I do it religiously or anything. Hmm. I wonder if there's a way to build something like that into the language. Oh. I'm, I'm sort of thinking on the fly here. Maybe if you type in... if you, So, like, in the situations where you pattern match a struct, at the, as, let's say, like, your first argument to a function is a struct, mm-hmm. and you pattern match that on there, it would be really cool if it just, like, figured out that that was the type spec and just added it in your editor or something. Yeah,
0: something like that, where there was a little more intelligence around, like, oh, I see what you're trying to do here. Um, or maybe there's a, a an immediate warning about, like... Oh, you define this type, and this function is taking something else without having to run Dialyzer.
1: I don't even know. Uh, do you have Credo configured to enforce type specs or anything right now?
0: Uh, not with type specs, no.
1: I don't even know if you can have that. Uh, I'm just going to look it up. Uh, looks like, yeah, you can enforce type specs. So then it does the work of dialyzer. It'll
0: say you're passing the wrong thing into this function. No, no, no.
1: Credo will just enforce the fact that you have to have a type spec with a public function. Oh, I see. But that sounds really good. Um, Yeah, Credo even caveats and says, the check only considers whether the specification is present. It doesn't perform any actual type checking. Sure. (laughs) Which is the part that uh, we're doing wrong, I guess. That's fair. It's still nice to have that sort of...
0: You know, it's like uh, automatic in your pull request. Oh, you forgot to do this thing. Exactly.
1: And honestly, that's, uh, as some of my engineers can probably attest, that's a thing that I always go back through and I knit on quite hard, mm-hmm. which is like public function must have a type spec. So,
0: so does that include like your uh, callbacks and gen servers?
1: Oh, uh, God. Uh, sn- no. <laughs> you know where we mostly do it is in our like service functions so we'll have like a module that encapsulates like a bunch of access to something like a context you might call it um and then what we do is uh, on all of those functions we that is definitely around all of our business logic we'll always have a doc and we'll always have a type spec Mm -hmm. and i found honestly a ton of value in doing that so far and uh on a growing code base, especially where we're now like six months into it, just having the docs as a crutch to go back on and read about what that function is doing. Obviously the docs can go stale, right? But I think the fact that Elixir forces you to do the docs inline on the function there, like is a really good thing. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I digress about type specs, but uh, yeah. I kind of see them as the same thing and I guess I shouldn't, but I, i guess that's just what's been beaten into me at this point yeah it's different perspectives on the
0: same idea what's this thing doing what are different ways of expressing what it's doing
1: well for me like one's the computer and one's like i guess they're kind of both human readable though i don't know but like one has more value to a to a uh, like a type checker right
0: but then you have doc tests where you're writing a doc and then it actually runs the test
1: yeah um I don't use doc tests right now. I don't know what about you uh we have some of them in our in our code base right now. Uh, do
0: you like it? not really <laughs> any reason <laughs> well i think it's i think it's sort of why not just write a regular test right because then i mean it, within the doc test there's certain things you can't do um, and you have to express it in a certain way and it's just as I think it's easier to write an actual x unit test. um where you can do more things with variables, you can pattern match, like you just have the full language at your disposal to write the test that does the same thing. Do these inputs produce
1: that output? Um, and it doesn't clutter up your source code. Yeah, that's kind of true. Oh no, so I don't see those things as clutter, but I, I'm i also like, I think that um, doc tests can be useful, but I think you're right in that like, why have it there? I. I'm gonna be controversial again. I actually think that, um, so I've been doing a bunch of JavaScript recently, but I think that having your specs next to your files is a really good thing. Like that, I think there's a bunch of um, like JavaScript libraries that have kind of been pushing more for this, where you end up having like a spec directory next to your actual code instead of in a separate test directory. Mm-hmm. And like, I actually think that closeness and the proximity is a really good thing just to jump between. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. That also depends if you're like a a file system organizing person, you know, like or do you just use Vim and you don't care about where the file is? <laughs> well, that's <laughs> sort of orthogonal
0: to using Vim. But I think um, I think you're onto something that uh, the structure of of your directories is more about. It's more for humans. Like I think in an ideal world, um, the thing that you're testing. The test should be next to the thing you're testing. Now, if I am like looking at application code trying to understand something, I don't necessarily want to see the test. But those two are um, those two are bound together. So it would be cool if there were a way to like I would say use something like Vim folding, um, but a little more sophisticated, where your test was right there, but it was just hidden most of the time unless you somehow toggled it to be visible.
1: Hmm, that's kind of interesting. I yeah so I like that I still don't mind the test being in a separate file I really don't I think that they have different purposes and they should be in separate files but um, I don't know it might be cool to like experiment with like throwing elixir test files inside of the um, the source code directory and then figuring out a way to only run those when you run mixed test I don't know kind of breaks conventions but.
0: I wonder if people have tried this. I mean, I assume that there's a reason we segregate our our testing stuff from the actual, like, do-the-thing source code.
1: Yeah, I was just thinking that. there probably is. It's probably about build and what gets uh, compiled. Although, like, it shouldn't get compiled uh, because there's nothing depending on it, I would imagine. And there's scripts. It would be easy enough to um, mark your tests as
0: tests and have the compiler ignore tests. Yeah, call
1: it .spec.exs or something. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't know, if anyone's done it, let us know, that sounds fun. Um, or if you have large opinions about why this is bad, you should also let us know.
0: Well, you know what I would like to see more of, and I suppose we're on the hook for this as well as people who write blog posts, is blog posts about using type specs. Um, we have the official docs, the official documentation, um, and there's a couple of blog posts out there. Uh, But it seems, the offerings seem a little thin. And I would like just more examples um, of how can I, I have this particular situation I want to test that, or I want to enforce that um, the map that gets passed in has a key with this value. That's another thing. You can't specify the type of a value in a
1: type spec. Just the type of the key for a map. The type, uh, yeah, I guess that's true. Why would you want to do that?
0: Well, if I'm passing in um, a map of params that has a user ID key, is that pointing to the integer user ID, or is that a string?
1: Uh, That's true, I guess. Can you not do that? Can you not have a type that's – I'm pretty sure you could do that. I don't know. I can't think off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure you could do that. If anyone knows how to do that, please write in. Couldn't you just do map and then say uh, user ID colon string, string dot T? That specifies the
0: type of the user, like the user ID key itself. Does it? Or
1: does it specify the value? It specifies the type of the key. Oh, damn. I know. Yeah. I feel like there must be a way to do that, but maybe not. Yeah, because I guess I always end up just saying map. And yeah, you're right. That's kind of if you're doing something that generic. But then at that point, just use a struct.
0: Well, on the contrary, if I have um, two function heads, the same function name, but one says, okay, well, you passed in um, a map of params with a user ID, or maybe there's like an external user ID because you have some legacy system you're interfacing with. Um, I would like to... To express that in the type specs. Like it, it does the same thing, but it, it looks for the information it wants in a different place and then uh fetches the the data in a different way.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I can kinda see what you mean. Right. Right, right, right. And there's probably a way to do it. There's probably a way to type maps or type something like that. Mm. Can you do it on list keyword lists? Probably not, right? Probably the same problem. Um, I think you can specify the value of because a keyword
0: list is a tuple yes so, oh
1: you're right so you could probably do it like that yeah and you can say yeah. what the type of each element a tuple is mm. but then <laughs> but then if it's like string or integer you're just going to end up with every value in that keyword list representing those possible combinations right do you see what I mean I don't really see what you mean uh, say you had a keyword list that's like params and it's like A um, the atom A and then the value 1 as an integer and then you have B and it's a string if you were typing those then you'd have to give both possible combinations Yes. so you're kind of losing the value in doing it I guess you could still like say A would always be this but again I think that's what you want to express is that these are both legal yeah that's kind of true yeah anyway we should probably not just program out loud it never works out that well
0: (laughs) i know a podcast is sort of a weird format for discussing programming stuff
1: especially like i i i never work well out loud i think i need to like write down you know but we can't hear your delightful british accent if you're writing it down uh it's true it's true maybe that's better for everyone so did you have any other thoughts about type specs Oh, actually, I had a question. Okay. I just remembered. If you only type spec a few functions, do you still get value out of it? I think so, because,
0: uh, as you pointed out, it does make for good documentation. And Dialyzer can still use that. Okay. Even though it's not covering the whole farm,
1: at least you've got a few crops. So you can do partial coverage kind of thing. So if you had function A, function B, function C, and I only type spec A... But B and C uh, but B called C and only one of them called a we can we could still get value out of that
0: yeah I mean dialyzer will still look at the functions and try to infer what's going on
1: oh the inference
0: okay so you do get some something out of that and yeah it's one of the situations where you don't have to have everything
1: to get any benefit we should probably talk uh, point to some really good uh, dialyzer talks in the blog post in the blog post in the show notes because I'm sure there are some
0: yeah I mean I, I would love to see more of this and get more of this information out out there
1: are you using dialyxer or dialyzer itself because there's dialyxer which is like the elixir wrapper for dialyzer right, right. Um, dialyzer okay maybe I should be using dialyxer yeah I, I thought one of them was slightly easier to interface with from mix if I remember I don't know what I'm thinking <laughs> just, are you even using it are you just making all of this up is that what you're yeah. pr-
0: i swear i know what i'm doing
1: <laughs> you just picked a random topic and you're like yeah, yeah yeah type specs let's do it yeah well
0: i think i've done pretty well for just making it all up on the spot it's true it's true i didn't make this all up on the spot no we know we're sure our listeners at home that we kind of know what we're doing uh well i think that's
1: uh that's probably enough about type specs for one episode <laughs> we shall revisit when we find out that we can do what we needed to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're learning along with everyone else. Yep, definitely.
0: Speaking of learning, I've been doing some interesting stuff recently with uh, hot code upgrades. Uh, Do tell. Do tell. So I have... Um... I have this thing with hot code upgrades, because in a lot of the documentation about Elixir and why is this a cool platform? And what does Erlang give you? One of the things that they always say is you can do these hot code code upgrades. Gives you all these nines of reliability, it's so sweet. And then you think, wow, that sounds cool. How do I do this? And then the chorus is, oh, it's actually not that worth it. It's kind of hard, just don't do it. And it's like, well, then why'd you pitch me on this in the first place? And there's not a lot of information about, well, what exactly is complicated? What do I need to think about if I want to do hot code upgrades? So I've been doing some research recently, and I have an answer, or at least a partial answer. And the answer is hot hot code upgrades are not that scary. Mm. The only challenge is when you are storing state in memory, and you have to change what that
1: state is. Then you need to think about how you're going to do the upgrade. Well, in that situation, do you end up writing like a migration from state A to state B or something? Yes. Okay. And one of the Gen Server callbacks is a code change.
0: Ah. It's a function that um, Elixir stores the version of each module, and so when you upgrade something, it gives it a new version, and so you write this, you implement this code change function, um, and you can match on which version you're upgrading uh, to or downgrading from, um, and then. That's, it passes in the current state, and then it lets you transform it, add new fields, take something away, whatever, and then um, return the modified state. So if you've changed the shape of a struct or done something else or changed the type completely, that's where you would say, all right, here's the new thing. Uh, change to this and then keep going. That's cool. Yeah. So what did you do this for? What do you mean? What was the use case for the hot code upgrade? there's two parts to it one no downtime um and the other is if you're storing a lot of stuff in memory and then you turn the app on it can take a while to boot up and the hydration can be very expensive if you're using this as a a cache it can take a while to warm up the cache um and so why not just
1: think about what it is you're changing because usually you're not changing that much and Did you do this with a release, like a distillery or anything like that? Or have you just been tinkering with it locally?
0: No, this is all with uh, distillery releases. And I don't want to get too into distillery for for this because there's a lot of documentation on distillery and how to do upgrades with them. I will say that in the simple case of you have an app and you're adding some modules and you're adding some functions and you're not changing anything that's sitting in a gen server and you are not changing your supervision tree, you can do a hot upgrade for free check the docs for distillery it's as easy as building a release you just say build an upgrade Um, you do have to think about the version of your application um, which is set in your mix file and the simplest thing to do is instead of specifying a string in your mix file point it to a version.txt file um, have it read from that and then in a a release script bump that version in the file Um, because it needs to know what, am I, uh, what version am I upgrading to and,
1: or what am I downgrading from? So are you saying I should try this? Yeah, totally. How, my next question is, <laughs> no, I was, I was going to troll you and say, like, how do I do this with Docker? <laughs> but They're kind of like this, I don't know, that, like the overlap to me is kind of interesting, right? It, it really, it makes sense for like s- stateful services, definitely. Yes, and uh,
0: to be clear, this will also not work on Heroku
1: because stateless?
0: Well, because you don't use um, releases on Heroku. Oh, sorry, yeah. That makes more, a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, good I don't want to get into Docker too much, because uh, I don't like Docker, and I don't want to turn this into a, a good versus bad on Docker. But um, Docker removes your uh, Elixir Erlang application from the VM, and like Erlang was um, built around... It was built to be able to do all the stuff that um docker or kubernetes or some of these other orchestration services give you um only it's been doing it a lot longer so you're sort of shoving it back into a, its own box um and taking away a lot of the
1: functionality um that you would get otherwise are you saying i'm doing it wrong yeah you are doing it wrong i don't know why you're using <laughs> docker damn it damn it you heard it here first no I. uh, uh I think it's it does it does sound like an interesting kind of avenue of exploration. Um honestly for our like like we do a bunch of real time stuff with Phoenix and I could see it be really useful there. Mhm. Like in our socket service that we have um every time that we do any restarts on that we see we basically see like lots of long live connections moving around to lots of other machines just because that's the inevitability of a WebSocket, right? You take away one machine, they're gonna go to the next machine and you're gonna see like that um, uh, thundering herd of traffic go to the other machine. Um, so I could see it being really cool there where we could just say, boom, hot code.
0: Yeah, exactly. And the VM handles uh, that internal migration really. And um, it's very good at saying, okay, I'm gonna suspend work going to this process. Uh, and flip it so you don't see these service interruptions, you don't see these spikes in, in response times as you turn off one app and, and turn it back on again. Mm. <laughs> so I'm not saying that hot code upgrades are right for you. Again, your mileage may vary, but I think they are easier than, than people think they are. And I would just like to see more stuff out there about here's exactly what you need to do, understand what that what those things are, and then you can make the call, whether it's it's worth it, instead of uh, being waved off by oh you have to mess with these app up files or rel up files, and sometimes you might have to, and that is a little weird, but again that's mostly in the case where you're changing a supervision tree, adding a new application, stuff like that, and in that case maybe it does make sense to turn it off and turn it back on again.
1: Yeah, uh, that so that's a good question, right? Like given that given that hot up uh, hot code Uh, upgrades are really useful for stateful services and most of those stateful services are going to be persisting state in you know a gen server or something Um, and then you'll often want to migrate that state doesn't that therefore mean that a lot of these hot code upgrades are going to need some kind of state migration Uh,
0: yeah the situation you described is when you need a state migration when you're
1: changing Mm. state in
0: memory Right. But again, if you're just adding functionality or taking it away and you're not mucking with something that's sitting in one of your gen
1: servers. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, I guess in those cases, then if you can avoid doing like the state migration thing and everything can be nice and simple, then yeah, it kind of makes sense.
0: Yeah, and you do have to think about what's going out in each release and think about right. where you're migrating. But I don't think that's any different from if you're running a large app. Uh, plenty of companies... Uh, have these three-stage releases where they deploy an update to their schema and then they deploy an update to the application code to reflect that or they have something where they deploy database triggers to copy data to like a temporary table and then read from that temporary table while they migrate the main table and like all this jiggery pokery um, which makes sense at a certain scale for certain use cases the point is that we're already doing this work in our migrations this is no different and it's no more difficult Hmm. So there's no reason to be frightened of it.
1: Yeah. No, I think, uh, it sounds like you should write the blog post.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you're right. I'm working on it. Um, and I think it would would also be great to have, um, Paul Schoenfelder on the show, Bitwalker, who's, um, working on adding releases into mix. Um, I've sort of been following his work on that and, uh, yeah, it'd be great to hear his thoughts on this sort of thing. Um, because, again, maybe this is right for you, maybe it isn't, but I think we have to get the word out there. Yeah, maybe we can put the screws to him about, like, help make this easier, you know, see if we can push people uh, into doing hot code upgrades when it makes sense um, and, like, get that for free when it's free.
1: Mm. No, it kind of it, It's cool that it's uh, easier than we thought, especially when I, I, like you, have heard a lot of very negative things about doing it, but then... Yeah. I wonder I wonder at what point it gets really hairy, like how complex it gets. And like what does a downgrade situation look like, right? What if I like what if I've got to do it across 20 machines and like one of those machines fails or I need to roll back across all of them or something like
0: that. If you're doing something like that at that level, any migration is going to be tricky. Regardless of what your strategy is or how you're deployed.
1: Hmm. Do I agree with that so my instinct there is to say that stateless services make that really simple right because if it's kind of immutable and you can just throw it away and spin another one back up it's actually fairly easy to reason about and to actually get those things out there in the wild yeah as soon as it's longer lived and stateful then it's it's a bit harder
0: but then if you're writing stateless services why are you using elixir
1: Oh, oh, now snap! We're a different, yeah. Damn. <laughs> I, yeah. So, I, I don't know, man. I think there's still a lot of value in doing stateless services in Elixir. Great programming language. It's pretty fast. You got the Erlang VM. There's still a lot of benefits. I don't think it's like as clear-cut as saying if you're doing this, you should not be using this.
0: That's true. I, th- I think it is similar to buying an Aston Martin and only driving it in reverse. <laughs> It's like, yeah, it still looks sweet. It handles well. It goes pretty fast, but, you know.
1: (laughs) Damn. You know what? I think we're going to have to pick this one up for another day and debate this with someone else on the show who's maybe done some Go or something like that because I think that would make for an interesting debate. Did we mention this
0: in the last show? I heard someone say sort of trollishly, like, yeah, if you're not using gen servers, then you shouldn't be using Elixir. And I do think that... As a language, I think it's it's an incredible language with pattern matching, um, with immutable data, uh, with functions, and um, I would use it just for that on its own. Mm. So that's not to you know argue against my own point because those are those are big benefits, and maybe you don't need to keep state in memory. Uh, but right. again, I think we we're trying to we're trying to push things forward. And leverage the strengths of this uh, this ecosystem and I think that means looking at stateful apps and I think that means hot upgrades like those are
1: those go hand in hand I think on your Aston Martin analogy which first of all I appreciate because it's a British car company well it was I guess uh, <laughs> on that note I think it's more like it's more akin to driving it in fourth and maybe not using the fifth gear right I would say that you still get so many benefits from the language that there's still a lot of value in doing it um, like yes sure are you not using all of the aspects of the language but there's still you know by, but just by the fact that you're using Phoenix you're using Gen GenService right?
0: Well and astute listeners will know that Aston Martins have six forward gears not five
1: Oh, damn. Is that true across all of their cars, across all of all of the years of their cars? I don't think so. I'm
0: sure I'm sure the old ones had only five forward gears, but
1: <laughs> some of them might have had four. So maybe <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I, I think uh, I think we digress a bit. But yeah, I, th- I honestly I, I think this is like it's a very interesting line of questioning. Right. That we should we should pick up on another time. Yeah. Great. Sounds good. Cool. So I just wanted to give one last plug for MPEX NYC, which is happening uh, by this time this episode goes out, probably this week. Uh, So MPEX NYC is on May 19th, uh, hosted here in New York in a jazz club. Uh, There's a few tickets still left. If you're interested in coming, we'd love to see you there. I'm going to be there. Desmond's going to be there. You know, the whole gang's going to be there. (laughs) Um, I don't know who else, but some other people. So uh, hopefully just see you down there. Yeah, and there's also trainings the day before, right? That is correct. We have a nerves training. We have uh, an advanced Elixir training with two of the core team members, and we have a beginner training as well. So all of those are happening on the Friday before. Um, There are very few tickets left for that. But if you do want to come along... Uh, get in there quickly
0: yeah cool those trainings are always pretty
1: pretty awesome and and everyone we've done is sold out i think so yeah it's always been a good day definitely and then yeah we'll be i don't know we'll be doing this conference and then uh some drinking in the evening talking about some elixir you know those kinds of things yeah stop by and say hello definitely cool cool well this has been another exciting
0: episode of elixir talk thanks chris
1: thank you desmond and
0: uh thank you to our listeners for joining us we'll see you next time